From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We are back in Washington, back to reality with breaking news. I'm Joe Matthew here in the nation's capital and glad you're with us on the Monday edition of Sound On. We just heard officially from the White House that we have a deal to extend the pause in Israel. It will result in more hostages being released. Two more days for 20 hostages. This just coming together in the last hour or so. And I want to bring in Jordan Fabian right now, White House correspondent at Bloomberg. Uh, Jordan, this was the hope. We heard from Joe Biden over the weekend who said, you know, we've got this initial four-day plan. The hope was to extend it and maybe get additional hostages. It's not a coincidence uh, that we have 20 hostages in this case. There was an agreement that called for some structure here for each day, I believe, for each two days, it was 10 hostages. Could this just keep going on indefinitely? I think President Joe Biden and the U.S. would love to see that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Israel has still made it clear that after this pause, after there are hostages released, that they plan to continue uh, their military campaign against Hamas in Gaza. And so uh, we haven't heard any indication so far that they plan to change those plans. But the longer this goes on, I think the U.S. hopes the more time they have to maybe talk Israel down, maybe downsize that continued offensive once this is over. Yeah. Um, This is something that came up on Sunday morning television. Uh, Mike Turner, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee, a Republican, was concerned about the lack of detail that the administration had or at least was making public about the hostages. Do you have a sense of whether the White House knows where they are? I think you you heard John Kirby in the briefing today admit that they don't really have a ton of details about the whereabouts, uh, particularly of the remaining Americans who are being held. Uh, Mm -hmm. Part of the complication of this is that you're dealing with Hamas, which is a group whose leadership is deep underground in Gaza. All of this is being done through an intermediary in Qatar. And so they're not the two parties are not talking directly. The hostages are also being held not just by Hamas, but by other groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Mm -hmm. who may have moved them around to different locations. So uh, it's a lot of this is a leap of faith. A lot of this uh, is not like, you know, information like proof of life, well-being is not really readily available. But uh, what we've seen so far over the last few days is that the releases have taken place. The hostages are getting back. So uh, I think the hope is that they can continue to do that. Uh, While you're still with us, Jordan, the matter of Uh, Israeli funding is obviously a real one, and it's something that we're going to be talking about quite a bit as lawmakers return to Washington. There are questions, though, about what form it might take. Chris Murphy, the senator, a Democrat from Connecticut, suggested over the weekend that uh, essentially humanitarian strings would be attached, that it would be based on uh, making good on international 
a humanitarian law, knowing that there have been a number, uh, an extraordinary number of Palestinian civilians who have been killed in this conflict. Is that something that the White House is open to? President Biden said on Friday that he would look at ways of conditioning this aid. That's a shift. Before, in the mm. beginning, when this was first proposed, said, you know, we're going to help Israel, no strings attached. But since then, uh, you know, this offensive has taken place in Gaza. A lot of Palestinians have died. Whole cities have been leveled. And so uh, the, the mood has turned among Democrats. They want to see some concessions here. Uh, but then the calculus gets tough because Republicans don't want to see concessions. There's also the broader disagreements over Ukraine and immigration that could subsume this Israel issue. So the path to passing Israel aid is a lot harder than it was just a month ago. Isn't that for sure? It does seem like it's kind of out of the White House's hands at this point. And the president needs to wait to hear from leaders on the Hill. Is that the case? Reading between the lines of what the president has said, I, I think he's saying, look, um, if you guys have a proposal for conditioning this aid, let's see it. Write it into law and we can see if we can get it passed. But I don't see the president acting unilaterally to yeah, do that. Right. He's looking to Congress. So as mm -hmm. you said, yes, it's now in lawmakers' hands. Hope you had a great holiday. It's good to see you. Thank you, you, too, you as always. Jordan Fabian covering the White House for us here at Bloomberg, getting things started here on the Monday after. As we mentioned, news is breaking here. And we're also watching the price of oil remembering great concerns that so many people had about what might happen to energy prices if the war between Israel and Hamas somehow grew into a second or a third front. We've seen the opposite happen. Oil prices have, in fact, come down in a bit of relief over that, but also with, uh, of course, supply and demand uh, Issues really driving prices here, a slowing economy in China, an expected slowdown here in the U.S. So it's something that we wanted to talk to uh, Bob McNally about at Rapidan Energy, because we do have an OPEC meeting that's coming up this week, and oil ministers will likely be reacting to everything that I just mentioned. Bob is with us right now, of course. Rapidan Energy, as I mentioned uh, former National Security Council Senior Director for International Energy. He also spent some time in the White House. Bob, it's great to see you. I hope you had a great holiday. Uh, we're looking at crude oil here, and I'm, I'm looking at WTI at this point, below $75 a barrel. The OPEC meeting is on Thursday. Is there anything that ministers will do, and I suspect you've got an answer to this, to try to shore up prices going into winter? Hey, Joe, it's great to be with you. Yeah, you know, uh, th there is a little bit of um, sort of side business, though. Before we get to keeping a floor under prices, uh, OPEC Plus kind of set it up, set itself up for some discussions back in the summer when they said, look, for a few countries in Africa, Nigeria, Angola, Congo, uh, we're going to lower your quota starting in January. So mm -hmm. even if we were here at $100 a barrel, Joe, there still is going to be some litigation going on about finalizing those lower quotas for some of those producers. Then you get UAE, which got a bump. So there's that. And that's largely why we delayed, why we didn't have the meeting, uh, the OPEC plus meeting on Sunday. And now it's going to be Thursday. I think yeah. it's largely because of that. Let's call it side business. But then comes the issue okay. you just described. Uh, oil prices are a lot softer than they thought. Balances are softer. We didn't see the big inventory draws everyone expected in the third quarter. So now they have to decide whether to extend their voluntary cut, the Saudi voluntary cut, or even cut deeper. And Joe, I think chances are they will. They'll at least extend the current Saudi cut through the third, first quarter of next year. OPEC Plus remains in proactive, you know, precautionary and preemptive mode. Um, so uh, that is our best case. I think odds favor some form of continued restraint on supply to keep prices from falling out of bed here. 
what does it mean if if that's the case, if they do get some cuts here? And I know that the, the Saudis are asking others to lower their quotas to try to shore up prices. What could we see between now and the end of the year? Well, I think if we get a solid extension of the Saudi cut at the very least, an extension of the 300,000 barrel a day Russian restraint on exports, uh, UAE may be asked to wait a bit before increasing mm -hmm. its production, as was promised in the summer. You know, that's an additional restraint of a million and a half barrels a day. I think we'll see a rally. I hope we talk about geopolitical risk. I think it's a little too low. So I think uh, between here and the end of the year, if we get the OPEC plus restraint, I think geopolitical risk is skewed higher. I think we can get a nice little rally here into year end. If they fail to cut, if they fail to signal the market their continued resolve, you know, uh, oil prices could be heading south pretty fast. This is fascinating considering the fact that there's a hot war in the Middle East, Bob. And that's where we started the hour here talking about Israel, Hamas, and now what appears to be and in fact is an extended truce. We're going to get 20 more hostages out here. The headlines are, have been a bit better over the past couple of days, but we've seen massive destruction and continued fighting with an expectation that fighting will resume. I know we're not at war with Iran, but are you surprised to see oil prices continuing to sink in this environment? I am a little bit, I have to say. Uh, I, we don't, our base case is not that this Gaza war will spread regionally, but it's not zero. And when we look at options pricing and flat price and just talk to our clients, you get the impression there's zero risk of disruption. And it's not zero, it's at least 30%. I'm surprised at how many of our traders think that somehow Israel's not gonna resume the war, that this uh, truce will get extended, extended and become permanent. We're pretty sure once they've gotten all the hostages out they can, they will go back to business, you know, uh, and in, yeah. in Gaza. And we think, um, uh, you know, the risk is not zero. And you see now we're boarding ships that the Houthis are seizing. We're starting to attack the United States and kill Iranian proxies that are attacking our troops. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, neither Tehran nor Washington wants to see a global conflict, but you can't always get what you want. And we think the cycle of violence is going to resume here um, when the truce is done. And so another thing, Joe, surprising that the, the Biden administration, I would say to its credit, is not only filling the SPR amidst two wars mm -hmm. going on, but also I think is getting ready to really crack down on cheating under the G7 price cap on Russian exports. They're willing to take more risk than they were this summer or before in restricting supplies in order to fill that SPR and also uh, make life a little more uncomfortable for Joe Biden. So rack that up there, too, as another bit of a well, man bites dog story a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, what's happening with the, the Houthis. We should let our listeners and viewers know what took place over the weekend. The USS Mason responded to a distress call off Yemen an attempted hijacking of a chemical tanker owned by an Israeli billionaire. They managed uh, to uh, pursue the attackers. They tried to get away and they were apprehended. But all the while, two ballistic missiles were fired at the Mason from Houthi-controlled uh, Yemen. They landed about 10 miles away. That could have ended very differently, Bob. And that's the kind of story you're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we've had about 80 attacks and rising on U.S. forces. So far, God, uh, thanks, thanks to God, we haven't had anyone killed. But, uh, you know, a lot yeah. of folks looked at the Iranian foreign minister when he came out and said, look, we don't want this war to go regional. Uh, fine. But then they didn't pay attention to his next sentence when he said, but if Israel continues its attacks in Gaza, 
it will become inevitable. And I think folks are just whistling past the graveyard a little bit about uh, geopolitical risk in the Middle East. It's not zero. We learned today that the the president will not attend COP28 this week, uh, the big UN uh, climate summit. I don't know if that was on your radar. Apparently, John Kerry is going to go in his place. Uh, But that's, of course, uh, an organization and an event that wants to put quotas to transition to green energy in uh, a more aggressive place than they are now. What does it tell you about just the menu of options here and the priorities that this president is facing that he decided not to go? You know, it must have been a, a difficult decision for him because ever since the Biden administration approved the Willow project back in the spring in North Al- in Alaska, yeah. they have been losing. You see it in the polls, losing a lot of young, uh, young, young uh, voter support, really under pressure. And that's why they're, they crack down a little bit more. They're trying to get tighter on the environment. So I have to say. I was a little bit surprised to see the president not uh, not going there and, and waving the flag. I think there is a concern that maybe there's not going to be some very good deliverables uh, there. They're talking about restraint on methane, uh, trying to get mm-hmm. together with China on a renewable target. But really, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a substance there. And uh, so maybe he's concerned about going to a kind of a substance free meeting. There's also controversy because the COP28, after all, is being hosted by one of the world's largest oil producers and exporters, oil and gas, <laughs> and there's true. controversy there. But a bit surprising because he's underwater with his young voters, and I would think he'd want to shore up his uh, green credentials by going. That's a great point. Uh, Bob, it's good to talk to you. I appreciate your joining today. Bob McNally at Rapidan Energy, where he's president, also former National Security Council Senior Director for International Energy and a unique perspective, which is why we talked to Bob frequently here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Want to assemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us. We're going to have a lot of time for Rick and Jeannie throughout the hour here. But just to pick up on where Bob left off here, Jeannie, your thoughts on on Joe Biden deciding to stay at home to manage this crisis and not attend uh, the COP28 summit in Dubai. Will he regret that? Um, I don't know if he'll regret it, regret it, but I too was as surprised as Bob, you know, just given the poll numbers, as he mentioned, and we've talked about 18 to 34 year olds, he is suffering in that age range, the environment, climate, really, really key issue for him, for them. And of course, the poll numbers suffering now because of Israel, but you add those together, I was surprised he chose not to go, but the reality is he does have so much on his plate. It is really, mm-hmm. really possible that he just couldn't fit it into his schedule and he's going to find another way to shore up those green credentials. I can only assume that that is the case here, Rick. Would it also suggest that this truce could be extended again? Uh, yeah, I think that obviously it's gotten extended, you know, uh, just notified today for another couple of days. Hopefully many more hostages will be released. That could be a positive impact on uh, the president's numbers. But we also see in recent polling uh, that the young people, 18 to 35, are turning against the war in Israel. And so you couple that with the lack of commitment on climate. That's where we'll pick up when we come back with Rick and Jeannie. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Just don't call it a ceasefire. The pause or the truce, if you will, is being extended. This is breaking news today from the White House. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. 
Welcome to the fastest show in politics. It's been a couple of days. We've got a lot to talk about here. Having seen the release of dozens of hostages over the weekend, it appears there will now be 20 more in an extra two days of pausing, of course, in the fighting between Israel and Hamas. Here's Admiral John Kirby a short time ago at the White House. Humanitarian pause has already brought a halt to the fighting together with a surge of humanitarian assistance. Now, in order to extend the pause, Hamas has committed to releasing another 20 women and children over the next two days. We would, of course, hope to see the pause extended further, and that will depend upon Hamas continuing to release hostages. We reassemble our panel for their take on what's happening. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, join us here for the balance of the hour. And Rick, I wonder your thoughts here as Joe Biden cancels his trip to Dubai for COP28 this week to focus on this matter. I know the Qataris are helping to broker this deal, but the White House is taking some credit for making it happen. Is this the way it keeps on rolling? Another day, another extension? Yeah, I don't want to jinx it, but uh, the point you made in the last segment that uh, a pause doesn't necessarily go to a ceasefire. Well, Joe Biden said over the weekend at Nantucket that he hopes the pause does result in a ceasefire. And of course, I think that's what everybody is hoping for right now is some uh, some more tangible uh, end of hostilities so that the balance of these hostages can be returned. I also thought that one of the things that was uh, not well reported is that um, the Qatari foreign minister, Sheikh Mohammed Al Thani, has made the point that part of Hamas's uh, issues with uh, releasing prisoners is that there are a number of other terrorist groups operating within Gaza that hold hostages that are not directly under the the control of Hamas, and so Hamas has to go fetch them. They don't know where they are, all of them. So it just shows you the level of disarray that exists in Gaza and how hard it's going to be to be able to secure the release of all these hostages. President just tweeted, uh, Jeannie, I have consistently pressed your rights for a pause in the fighting to accelerate and expand the humanitarian assistance. Uh, this, of course, is something we've talked about a lot, having seen a real shift in sentiment among young voters. To Rick's point earlier, 18 to 35-year-olds are largely not happy with the stand that the administration has taken on this. This is why the president, of course, at least partly, was out over the weekend talking about the deal that had been put together. Let's remember the fact that a four-year-old girl, a dual U.S. citizen, was freed over the weekend. You've probably heard about Abigail. Here's the president. A little girl named Abigail who turned four years old. She spent her birthday, that birthday, and at least 50 days before that held hostage by Hamas. <clears throat> Today, she's free, and Jill and I, together with so many Americans, are praying for the fact that she is going to be all right. Abigail Eden is her name, Jeannie. To what extent does this revelation help Joe Biden here at home in making the case for why the administration is backing Israel? You know, I, I think that people have to look at what has happened over the last several days. I don't think in the aftermath of October 7th, many of us would have thought that we would see these hostages coming home. Um, they were obviously held too long. There's obviously a lot more there. But the Biden administration does, to a certain extent, feel, and rightly so, vindicated 
that his approach, this hard driving private diplomacy has gotten us to where we are just today, as you've been reporting, another two days in this pause that we all hope gets extended and gets everybody out. So they do feel they are headed in the right direction. With the pause, there has been enormous opportunity to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, much needed there. And so all of those factors for anybody who reflects seriously on this would help people, and particularly young people, support what the Biden administration is doing, or at least it should. Um, you know, hmm. we can't say how people will feel in the polls. The numbers are pretty stark for them right now. But, you know, every once in a while, a leader has got to say, I'm doing the right thing regardless of the polls. And in this case, Joe Biden is and let the chips fall where they may. He has been supporting our ally Israel. He has been working hard to get aid in there and working hard to get hostages out. I don't know what more you could ask for. So to a certain extent, the polls have to be damned in this case, whether they're young people or not. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, quite remarkable to see Elon Musk walking around in Israel uh, today, Rick. This, of course, is following, as he says, you know, watch my actions, not my words. This follows a, a severe backlash on what we used to call Twitter following uh, what I think we can agree was uh, an anti-Semitic repost that he made. It's driven some major advertisers away. And now suddenly, if you're with us on YouTube, you see this video of Elon Musk walking around uh, with a Kevlar vest side by side with Benjamin Netanyahu pulling out his phone, taking pictures of the carnage left behind as they tour him uh, through the area here. He described the attack by Hamas as evil and jarring and says he wants to help rebuild Gaza after the war, uh, following his conversation with Benjamin Netanyahu, who, by the way, did not address the anti-Semitism on X. Rick, what in the world is going on here? Is this a prelude for a Starlink deal in Israel? Well, I think it's more a hope that the uh, the platform X isn't actually being canceled by all their uh, advertisers because of the anti-Semitic uh, retweet that uh, reacts that uh, that got him into all this trouble. I mean, this is the most high profile apology tour that I've seen in a long oh, time. Um, you know, he's in the woodshed. Only Bibi Netanyahu can get him out of it. And, and maybe ultimately the untying of all of Bibi's relationships in the United States because of it. Uh, it's very difficult to see how this is anything in his favor. So um, doing a doing a piece of work for for uh, Elon Musk by trying to get him out of uh, self-imposed exile uh, is going to be uh, maybe his last act as prime minister. I can't see how this is actually going to do anything but put him under the political wow. uh, uh, thumb of voters in 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 Israel. Well, that would be quite a price for him to pay in this case, Jeannie. It is reported that the Israeli government is in talks with Musk about setting up Starlink as a backup uh, to its own military communications. What do you make of this, though, a, a, a rehabilitation tour in a hot war zone? Yeah, to stop advertiser bleeding. I mean, it's really astounding. And, and you know, Elon Musk, rightly so, has really found himself caught after he retweeted that horrific anti-Semitic 
uh, posting. And, and, you know, the advertisers rightly fled. He's also got this controversy going on about anti-Semitism with Media Matters. So he's over there trying to shore that up. You know, I think really critically important as we think about Benjamin Netanyahu is that the Biden administration doesn't stop here. I think what we heard from Bernie Sanders over the weekend, you mentioned Chris Murphy, what we've heard from other folks is that this blank mm -hmm. check rightly so cannot and should not continue, whether we attach it to Obviously, you have to uh, respond to and abide by international law, certainly. But another thing it should be attached to is that Bibi Netanyahu commits to no more settlements and he stops his rhetoric that continues to this moment about the fact that he will not work with the PLO. You can't destroy Gaza take out Hamas and leave it with absolutely no power structure. And if we're going to give aid over there, as we should and we have, we should make sure that the views of Americans attached to that aid are perfectly clear. And yes, the amount of civilian deaths is an important part, but there's also the strategic part of that for us. We have an interest in that, and that interest needs to be addressed. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. There is a deal. It's official now. And the White House has confirmed this deal to extend the truce for the release of 20 more hostages. And this follows what I think most of us would agree is a successful weekend in getting a lot of folks out of harm's way. Yeah, absolutely. There's been more than 50 hostages already released by Hamas, even more Palestinians who were held uh, prison in Israel who have been released because, of course, there's this one to three ratio as part yes. of this deal. And it is pretty much the same deal terms that will go forward for another two days this Originally, this ceasefire was expected to expire early hours local time tomorrow, and instead it'll run through Thursday. But Joe, of course, despite the extension, Netanyahu is still maintaining when this t temporary ceasefire is over, That's right. the fighting is going to keep going. Which might be, I guess, the genius part to the way this agreement was written, because there was a structure for extending it. Mm -hmm. Two days, 10 hostages, and it's actually working in this case. That doesn't mean it will be extended again. Yeah. With great questions here now in Washington about funding going forward. We talked about this with Rick and Jeannie last hour. I'm not sure they agreed, Kaylee, because you've got Mike Turner, who chairs the Intelligence Committee, saying, we yep. can't figure out a border deal by the end of the year, and without it, there is no funding. And Chris Murphy, the Democrat uh, from Connecticut, saying... We're not going to approve uh, Israel funding without humanitarian strings attached. So you think they're going to get this done by the end of December? It, if they do, it's going to be a very hard-fought battle to actually get it over the finish line. In that, you have these kind of competing priorities. On the one hand, there is bipartisan support largely mm -hmm. to continue funding Israel, but you are starting to see more pushback on the progressive Democratic side 
because of the humanitarian concerns and the civilian death toll that continues to just climb uh, higher and higher until at least the ceasefire uh, went into place. On the other hand, you have Republicans who are just wary of spending more money in general, who want to try to extract some border security measures out of any potential uh, deal. And it's just it's just very unclear to me, Joe, how you put all of that together and actually mm -hmm. do so within a, a relatively short timeline. I'm not sure that they're going to get this done before yeah, the I don't year. Know. I don't know. Rick was of the mind there might be enough pressure to actually make it happen. Jeannie says, call me back when you have a serious question. <laughs> uh, I mean, we can't figure out how to fund the government here. We're going to yeah. figure out comprehensive immigration reform. I don't know. Rick's been there as well. Mm. So I do give him a lot of credit for his view. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, I'm sure, has strong feelings about all of this. He's back with us for his weekly conversation. It's great to see you, sir. Um, I'll forgo the business cards for everyone because I'm pretty sure everyone knows who you are at this point. <laughs> But I don't know your thoughts on this. Do we put Chris Murphy me, and Joe, Mike Turner to, in a room? Yeah, I hope they try. Hope they can figure out who I am because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Um, <laughs> oh, Looking, getting folks in a room is not the problem. Kaylee's absolutely right. There's all these sort of contributing factors that's going to make it difficult. And the only one I think she forgot is that the time pressure is off now. And I know that's sort of a perverse reverse hmm. incentive. But typically, big deals would get done at Christmas and again, right before yep. the August recess, because that's when Congress wants to go home. Well, they don't have the, the sort of the, the sort of Damocles to hold over the members right now because the funny deals go beyond Christmas. So I, I think it's highly unlikely anything gets done, at least on some of the border security. Israel's a little different story. Um, I know there's been some pushback on the humanitarian issues from the Democrat side. That's not unexpected. Yeah. But I still think there's broad support for Israel funding. If anything gets done mm -hmm. by Christmas, that might be the one. So, Mick, you don't think two ongoing hot wars are enough pressure on the on the timeline, even if it isn't an actual in writing funding deadline? You know, when they vote, when they vote for money, Kaylee, it's, it's mostly to sort of, you know, say, hi, I voted for something. I care about this. Right. They know in the back of their minds, it takes a long time for that money to go out anyway. So if they approve a deal December 15th or January 15th, it doesn't really make that much of a real world difference in terms of when the money gets to where it needs to be. A lot of the Ukraine money, for example, hasn't even gone yet. I mean, they've spent billions of dollars there. It takes a long time to spend that much money. Um, you know, you heard Biden, I think last week, say there was a hundred million dollar package. That's a rounding error in some of these, these, these dollar figures they're talking about. So yeah, look, there's pressure, but the pressure is PR pressure. It's not, it's not real world pressure. It's not mm -hmm. like the outcomes are going to change overseas if they take an extra 30 days. Mm. 53 days, I believe, till the government starts <laughs> at least running out of money in that that first tranche. Um, I wonder what form this takes then, Mick, because obviously we've outlined the challenges here. And you know that, of course, the speaker uh, already brought Israel funding to the floor as mm -hmm. a standalone. Will it then be at the mercy of a, of a border deal or, or is there another swing at this that looks like something we're not even aware of now? Yeah, all, sort of all the old textbooks are you sort of take them out the window because everybody in D.C. knows how this would have been worked out over the course of the last decade and a half, which is there would have been some monstrous omnibus bill that covered all of this. Hmm. I just don't see you getting that with Mike Johnson as the Speaker of the House, at least not right away. I think he's going to have to if he if he does go that way, it's going to be because it's an absolute last resort to get the stuff that the Republicans want. But I still don't see that. Look, you're in a strange new world now where voting for bipartisan things in the House could cost you your gavel. 
I know it didn't cost Mike uh, Johnson his gavel a couple of weeks mm -hmm. back when he cut that that laddered deal. But even then, there were people pushing back saying, how is this different than what Kevin McCarthy would have given us? So uh, you take the Washington that you know him for the last decade and a half and sort of push it aside. You don't throw it away, but you push it aside and say, look, that might be the way it goes. But that also might be the thing that doesn't happen ever again. So it, we're, we're at a learning curve with a, with a new uh, sort of a new regime in, in, the, in the House for sure. Yeah, maybe the new speaker used his uh, one-time free pass on a continuing mm -hmm. resolution with Democratic support. And of course, Mick, he has said he's not going to support another stopgap measure. He wants to get these appropriation bills done. Knowing the stance of Mike Johnson and, and the House, knowing the stance or just the reality of what a Democratic Senate and Democratic president are going to sign, who do you think ultimately has is likely to come out on the losing side of this, Mick? Oh, it's going to be the conservative right wing of the Republican Party because that's the minority, right? The, the majority of the House wants to spend money on something. And the Senate always wants to spend money on everything. I know that's being sort of tongue in cheek, but that's 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 not that far from the truth. So the conservative wing of the Republican Party is the minority within that party. And they're probably going to be the ones that take the short shrift here. Why? Because everything has to be bipartisan in the Senate. They have to have 60 votes, which means it's going to be a Democrat-dominated document coming out of the Senate. So if anything passes at the end of the day, it's going to be something that most conservatives in the House aren't going to like. I wonder your thoughts on uh, what we saw over the weekend, Mick, and how an event like this might change the entire conversation we're having. And that's the latest uh, by uh, a group of Houthi rebels who fired two ballistic missiles at a U.S. naval vessel. This is the USS Mason that was responding to a distress call off Yemen uh, as uh, apparently an Israeli billionaire's chemical tanker was being hijacked. Something like this could have taken on a very different form. They fired those missiles and they landed about 10 miles away from the Navy vessel. And I'm sure that the Navy has a lot of uh, methods up its sleeve to, to counteract a missile attack like that. But if that had gone in a different direction, what would it mean for the debate here in Washington? Oh, dramatically different. That's what everybody's afraid of, Joe. Everybody here, everybody in D.C., I'm not in D.C. right now, everyone in D.C., of course, anybody who pays mm -hmm. attention to this worldwide is worried about expansion. They're worried about a bleed over into Lebanon with Hezbollah. They're worried about Iran's intervention. They're worried about Russia's role. So far, so far, the Israelis have kept a pretty, everybody's been able to keep it sort of concentrated around Gaza. Yes, there have been incursions in the, uh, across the Lebanon-Israel border. There have been uh, events like you just described with the Houthis and so forth. There, these have been sporadic, however. There hasn't been sort of a, an organized expansion of this dispute. I got to give um, you know some of the GCC countries credit for that because I think they're probably interested in th keeping things as quiet and as contained as possible. Everybody's interested in that with the possible exception of Hamas, Hezbollah, and maybe Iran. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff, that's the outlier, right? That's the black swan. That's what you really worry about is this this, this uh, exogenous shock to the system which takes this from an incident in Gaza that blows up in the entire in the entire Gulf Coast, in the, in the Gulf region. So that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that gets everybody's attention uh, over the weekend. Mm. Well, would, would it mean funding more likely or would it mean a more difficult debate? 
now more likely uh, and more quickly um if, if things really got out of hand right right now you've got you, it's a convenience right you can argue about border security you can argue about ukraine funding you can argue about taiwan funding because things have sort of calmed down and i don't want to say that they're fi- they're not finished you know, that's i hope i'm making myself clear it's calmed down a little bit yep. from where it was but it's still very very tense okay but you can still you've yeah. got the the, the the you've got the uh, the ability to take your time a little bit if Iran is launching, you know, uh, nuclear weapons at Israel or vice versa, you don't have time to think about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, Mick, of course, all of us were were glued to the developments in the Middle East over the region, but there were other things in the news over the weekend as well, including this very long conversation that Republican Congressman from New York, George Santos, had on X Spaces, of course, formerly known at Twitter. Joe, I think we have a little bit of yeah. that, right? He's, of course, facing down a very likely... Uh, expulsion vote right. potentially as soon as this week. This and conversation, it feels like, the word we're yeah, rant? going with you. I, that, I, yeah, I, like extended. I, <laughs> yes, you can choose your you can choose your wording here, but this is a little taste of Congressman Santa. In the ranks of the United States Congress, there's felons galore. There's people with all sorts of shysty backgrounds, and all of a sudden, George Santos is the Mary Magdalene of United States Congress. He also called himself a Republican uh. it girl at one point. He said, though, he knows he'll get expelled when this expulsion resolution goes to the floor. But Mick, does he have a point about everybody else? No, no, he does. the guy doesn't have a point about anything. Look, you could have a really intelligent conversation about ethics in Washington, D.C. They're not nearly as bad as everybody believes them to be. I've been there for 15 years. It's not like Hollywood makes it out to be. Are there folks there who are doing stuff they shouldn't be doing? Yeah, but there's 535 of them. Show me any group of 535 Americans, and they're, they're not all of them are going to be as pure as the driven snow. But no, to try and distract from his own whatever it is by, you know, sort of saying, well, everybody else does it. It's just, it's par for the course with this guy. Look, step back and realize what's getting ready to happen here. We just had a long conversation about how difficult it is for the Republicans in the House, especially, but in Washington generally, to get anything done because the margins are so tight. And yet they are fully expected now to dis- to discharge, to, to expel one of their own into a seat that mm-hmm. likely becomes a Democrat. How bad does it have to be with George Santos for that to happen? Let's take some faith in the system under these circumstances and say, look, even though it doesn't help them politically and hurts them politically, it looks like the Republicans are getting ready to kick this nut job out. The system is working, and that's the takeaway from George Santos, not whether or not he's Mary Magdalene or an it girl or whether everybody else does it. <laughs> I kind of want to know who the it girl is. Um, <laughs> but does, So is is he out this week, Mick? I, I think you just answered oh. that question. If this becomes a privileged resolution, it's just a matter of days then, right? Yeah, it's the first it's the first opportunity. It, it, it is. It's it's as soon as he, the, the sooner, the better. I don't think they're waiting on. They don't they're not sitting around going, well, we need George's vote on this one last thing. Keep in mind, the government is <laughs> funded right. past Christmas. That, that's not how they're looking at this thing. I think the sooner we're done talking about George Santos, uh, the happier the Republicans in the House are going to be. We only have about a minute left. Mick, but who who is the it girl? I thought you'd follow. Do you do you have? I a thought, thought it was Kaylee. I thought I thought you were the it. Girl. Oh, <laughs> oh, easy. No, oh, you flatter listen. me. But right now, I mean, we will do this next week. Maybe it's Nikki Haley. It, it just is. She's had a really good <laughs> run of a couple of weeks. I don't think she's got a chance yet to to dig into Trump's leadership, but she's certainly cemented herself so far as sort of the preferred anti-Trump candidate. The problem is there's not enough anti-Trump votes to to 
give anybody the uh, the nomination right now. But she's had a pretty good couple of weeks. There's a lot of Republicans on the Hill wishing that they'd see more of Nikki Haley and less of George Santos. Hmm. Wow. I didn't expect a serious answer to that, yeah. for starters. But now, you know, now Donald Trump's going to call you because I think he wants to be the it girl, Mick. Uh, yeah, you know, that's he's going to be the nominee and that should be good enough for him. Wow. Well, if you still feel that way, we won't break that to Nikki Haley yet. It's great to see you, Mick. Every week at this time, Mick Mulvaney with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Wherever you are, get back to Washington safely. We look forward to doing it again here at the table. Mick Mulvaney. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines. It's the fastest show in politics with breaking news today from Washington on this Monday. Glad you're with us only on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.